0: Traditionally Advent is a time of year that is in the run up to Christmas and it's uh, taken from the Latin word Adventus which is the translation of the Greek word that we find in our New Testaments, which is parousia which refers to the coming of the presence and we often know that word in relation to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and for his church the parousia the coming of his presence and to be permanently with his people. An Advent is a time, then, when we're to think about the wonder that God has come to be with us and prepare ourselves if we need it. In the run-up to a time which particularly focuses our minds on the fact that God became flesh, the Son of God, eternal, took on humanity. We're remembering that and preparing ourselves again if we need to do that. And also, we're thinking of the coming of the same one again. So we're not just thinking about his coming as is traditionally celebrated at Christmas time, but we're thinking about his coming too, his coming for those who are his in the future. So it's a remembering and it's a time for thinking about the coming of Christ, the coming of God in times past and in the time that's yet to come. I want us to spend for the next three weeks uh, time in Isaiah chapter 9 thinking about advent the coming of the christ the seeing from isaiah the prophet who was given probably some of the clearest and most full understanding of the person of the messiah christ means messiah the promised one the anointed one that god was saying to his people israel was going to come and bring ultimately peace and glory on earth for his people and for god he's the one who speaks Uh, so much of the person of the Messiah. John, in his gospel writing, says that Isaiah saw his glory and spoke of him. You find that in John chapter 12. He saw his glory in Isaiah chapter 6. It says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. But not only did he see the Lord seated on the throne, but he also saw the Lord. Uh, Later on in Isaiah's prophecy, as the servant, The perfect servant who would come and ultimately would give his life. And Isaiah 53 brings you to the glory of the death of the servant of God, the Messiah. But then beyond that as well, we have Isaiah who sees the glory of the eternal kingdom of this same one. So he's raised from the dead and he has a kingdom that will last forever. That's the glory that Isaiah saw. And of which he spoke. And we're going to dip into a little section of it. Now I'm just going to say something very quickly before we read Isaiah 9. About what it says at the beginning of Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. It was the making of the prophet of God to have his vision fixed in a, in a very supernatural, miraculous way. To be able to be given this vision Of the pre-incarnate Lord of all seated on the throne in heaven and it was set against the death of King Uzziah who up to that point in Judah had been the longest reigning monarch. 52 years had passed of his administration and there had been reasonable stability in Judah in that time and in the days of uncertainty that were going to follow the Lord calls his man Isaiah and says you will go with a message to the nations for me and he shows him his glory first that's where it all starts now Isaiah was a man who grabbed people's attention for three years of, of his prof- prophesying he went around naked and barefoot now if you ever want to get somebody's attention maybe we need to try that but he did it for a reason So here's a man who sees the glory of the Lord and is prepared to do whatever the Lord would say and other things beside we don't have time to dip into. uh, That he might convey the message of hope that God was speaking to Judah and to Israel and the surrounding nations. But at the same time as it being a message of hope, it was a message of judgment too and of horrific things that were going to come. That's just a little touch of the setting into which Isaiah 9 comes. Read with me, please, Isaiah 9, because it's going to be our focus. And we're going to go back a couple of chapters and just see something more about this horrific setting. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times he treated the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, with contempt. But later on he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea. On the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine in them. You shall multiply the nations. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence, as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden, and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom. To establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. It's a great message of light. Of laughter and of liberty. And it's set against a backdrop which we're going to spend a little bit more time in. A setting of darkness, distress and despair. A child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. God was going to bring about something that was unstoppable. For the people to whom this was given. And as we spend time in it. It should just cause us to well up with joy too. Life. Laughter. And liberty. That's why God was coming in the person of his son. That that message might be proclaimed even Today, too. I want us to go back and read Isaiah 7. You've got there in mind Isaiah 9 and the declaration of who the child is, the son to be given, his name that we're going to look at over the next two weeks. His name, wonderful counselor, everlasting father, mighty God, the prince of peace. We're going to look at that over the next few weeks. But I want us to look at the setting into which this light has come. That's there in the earlier portion of Isaiah 9. Look at verse 10 of Isaiah 7 with me. And here we have the reference in prophecy to the child. Again, so these are linked. Then the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, he's the king, saying, Ask for a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Make it deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Then he said, Listen now, O house of David. Is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you will try the patience of my God as well? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey at the time he knows, enough to refuse evil and choose good. For before the Lord, for the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. There had been that stability for 52 years with Uzziah's reign. His son Jotham had come to the throne, and there had been a co-regency for a period of time over about 16 years. And Jotham was, as it's described in God's word, he, he did right in the eyes of the Lord. But then comes this King Ahaz, and he's one of the worst that Judah has ever had as a ruler. Now, I have to say something about uh, Judah as being separate from Israel. This time, this is when the kingdom was divided. God had brought his people out of Egypt, saved them miraculously, rescued them, redeemed them, and brought them through uh, to Sinai, given them the law, constituted them as a nation and as a priesthood to serve him, and said, you're going to the promised land, and there is the place of my rest, and there you will worship me in the place that I say. And eventually, the people come in and take possession of that land. And under Saul, and particularly under David and Solomon, are the glory days of that nation. They're settled in the place that God had set for them, with the law that God had given to them, and the worship center that God had said, that's how and where you will worship me. All of that was seen in its pinnacle, I believe, in the earliest years of Solomon's reign a united kingdom that stretched from very far north to very far south because David had been given great victories. But because of men's failure, Rehoboam comes to the throne, the son of Solomon, and there's hostility between tribes already. And the result is a breaking away. Northern territory which for the rest of your your, New, or your Old Testament is referred to as Israel. Ephraim um, is the northern tribes. And in the south is Judah and Benjamin. And the faithful ones of Levi. They remain in the south with Jerusalem as their capital city. And that's Judah. And this is the king over Judah. Up in the north the capital was Samaria. And they had a, a succession of wicked evil kings who were not of the line that god said would be king god had made a covenant with david your offspring will sit on the throne and he says and there'll be one sitting on the throne forever he was pointing forward to the messiah the son of david who would sit on the throne and will sit on the throne forever this is just the setting so 180 years after that division ahaz comes to the throne And there has been some stability, but he comes in and he's entirely against the things of God. Israel at this point, the northern kingdom, had started to be decimated by the soon-to-be world power of Assyria. They'd come in and under Tiglath-Pileser, they'd just come through and they'd taken over the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, Galilee, the Gentiles, and taken people off. Uh, into captivity from the northern kingdom because of their failure to obey the Lord. The consequences God had said to them would happen if they failed to do what he said, they'd been taken off. Read about that in 2 Kings 15 and 16. Syria equates today to Syria and northern Iraq. There's no accident that this is a focal point again in our world for distress and darkness and despair as well. Despite the troubles in Israel, it seems that the king up there, King Pekah, he has enough wherewithal to uh, gather an army and to side with Aram, which is southern Syria and uh, today and, and Jordan, and to side with the nation there to come up against Judah in the south. And we're told in 2 Chronicles 28 that they killed 120,000 people of Judah, this army that came through. And not only that, they took 200,000 people captive, though they were returned because God intervened. But they came against Jerusalem, and the setting of Isaiah 7 is King Ahaz sitting trembling, a wicked, wicked man. I'll tell you more about him in a moment. He's trembling. And God sends Isaiah and says, these two kings that are set against you, although they've done what they've done in the northern reaches of Judah, they will not come into Jerusalem. And Isaiah 7, the Lord spoke to Ahaz saying, ask for a sign. You ask me for something to prove that I am the Lord God who sits on the throne. Ahaz, you're the descendant of David. You're the one I said would sit on the throne, but you're not in control. I am. Now you ask for a sign. And Ahaz, in all of his wickedness, replies with sarcasm and says, he borrows something from the, um, uh, from the law. He says, I'll, I'll not test the Lord. And Isaiah continues, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Carries on and says, it's unstoppable. My purposes are unstoppable, the Lord God says. I'll give you a sign. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin She will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Now, my understanding is that that was something that would have happened within two to three years of the prophecy being given. It's one of these prophecies that has a a very soon fulfillment, but has a fuller fulfillment in the person of Christ. I believe that was the setting. So there was a virgin at that time, a a maid is the word, and she would uh, come together and with with someone would have a child and even in those days that were dark and despairing days and days of destruction she would still say I'm going to call him Emmanuel because God is with us so there were some in that nation even under the leadership of Ahaz who believed that God was still with them and it's there for before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken the reason why I say it's a fulfilled uh, thing for within a few years, before the, the child knows good from evil, so that's a young child. Those two kings are going to be gone. And they were. The Lord overruled, and they were gone. But this child was pointing forward to the greater child, which is then mentioned in Isaiah 9. Let me tell you about the wickedness of King Ahaz says he worshipped all the gods of the, the tribes of the region, that which God had said they shouldn't do, the Baals and the Asherah. And he built as many high places as he could, that which God said they shouldn't do. Don't go up to the high places where you think these gods are and worship them. Don't do it. He multiplied it. He made idols. Not only that, it tells us that he sacrificed his own sons and burned them, probably alive, to these gods that he thought were powerful ones. He completely ignored the Lord Almighty. No wonder he speaks with sarcasm when the opportunity comes for him to be given. A confirming sign from the Lord God that the Lord God will achieve something for his people. How guilty we are of the same thing. The Lord speaks to us time and time again through his word. And we will come back at times and think we know better. Take that as a little challenge. It comes to me. Not only that, um, Ahaz actually goes and tries to get help from Tiglath-Pileser, the the king of the Assyrians, the one who's decimated the northern reaches of the northern kingdom, thinking that that's going to be a help. So he strips out the the wealth of the temple of God, shuts the doors, and gives the wealth there to to this wicked king of Assyria. And it doesn't help him in the slightest. In fact, it makes him uh, even more... um, precarious in this situation and he actually goes up to Damascus to see this king whenever he's taken over Aaron Damascus being the capital of Aaron Tiglath-Pileser had defeated it and he goes up and he sees a wonderful um, altar that was there for the Baals and he sends word back to the high priest in Jerusalem and says you make it you make an altar like this one and put it before the house of the Lord and that's where we'll worship. Rampant, rampant sin and wickedness. No wonder these were dark, despairing, piteous days. And the Lord Himself will give you a sign, you wicked man. The Virgin will be with child, and will bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. God is with us. You know we can we know that that's a prophecy that was then fulfilled in Christ because Matthew takes that those very words and in Matthew 1 verse 23 after he gives us the account of uh, Joseph's dream and the angel speaking to him through it and says uh, he will be Jesus he will save his people from their sins Matthew's summary of that is that um, this was the Lord's doing and the virgin will be with child and will bear a son Mary was a virgin perfect before God that she had not had relations with a man (coughs) not perfect as Roman Catholics would consider it but she was chosen by God she was chosen by God for this purpose that God would intervene in her situation and a virgin would conceive and bear a child then with all of this hideous darkness of this uh, despairing scene this promise has come And God does his thing, as he always does. He's over all of the kings of the nation. He's over there. And he shows that this wicked king, Ahaz, he gets rid of those that were threatening him. And Israel, eventually the northern kingdom, would be completely decimated and taken off into Assyria, entirely wiped out. That's why it's referred to in Isaiah 9 as Galilee of the Gentiles. It's just populated by the Gentiles. Then we have in Isaiah 9 this description A fuller understanding of who this child, born of the Virgin, whose name is God with us, what he will be like. And notice that into that darkness comes this light. There'll be no more gloom. You know, I just want to read a few verses from Isaiah chapter 8. Read with me please, Isaiah chapter 8. And um, just the last phrase. Of that, It says, they have no dawn. So the place was just darkness. There was no hope. They have no dawn. They will pass through the land hard-pressed and famished. And it will turn out that when they are hungry, they will be enraged and curse their king and their god as they face upward. Then they will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be driven away into darkness. This was spoken to that southern kingdom, Judah. You need to go back and read all of Isaiah 8 and see that that which was happening in the north was going to come on the south because of their failure to obey the Lord God who had redeemed them and made them his own. It was coming and it's described here as being driven away into darkness. They looked for hope and there was none. There was no dawn. There was no end to this darkness that was there. And then Isaiah chapter 9 the light just bursts into that dark scene. And it's a prophecy about one who is coming. It's the child who would come hundreds of years later. Isaiah was writing about 740 years before the birth of the Lord Jesus. People had to wait that long for this one to burst into this scene of darkness. Darkness because of sin, the consequences of sin that God had said in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, this will come on you if you don't love me and you do that which I've said is for your good and for my glory if you don't do it this is coming and God spells it out to us as sinners he tells us and we can see it ourselves in the actions we do things and what happens we see the consequences of it and it can last for generations that's where we are as sinners in a dark despairing place of no hope and into that setting there comes this light this arrival of the son of God God with us Emmanuel light laughter did you notice it and liberty too it's there in those verses set against that which was what were the three d's I'd given you darkness distress and despair The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. And those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. I think it's interesting that the Lord, in giving this word, he has just spoken about the darkness that's going to be coming on Judah, and they will eventually, 586, 587, will be taken off into Babylon and suffer the same um, hideous things that the north has suffered under under the hands of the Assyrians. Under the Babylonians, they'll suffer the same. The word of Isaiah 8 is written... To Judah but then the Lord spreads it out again the Lord God he spreads it out again in Isaiah 9 and he says you look at the northern reaches which were the first people to suffer the consequences of their departure from my things and it's to them the light will come and the Lord Jesus Christ the incarnate son of God is the one who spends his time in Nazareth and in Galilee that very region no wonder light came into that dark place So 740 years, Jesus is the fulfilment of of this that we've read. He's the fulfilment of Isaiah 7 and 14. The virgin shall be with child and will bear a son. And she will call his name Emmanuel, God with us. This is the wonderful miracle of the grace of God that into the darkness of our setting and our, our scene, of our world, of ourselves in all of our darkness because of sin, because we choose to go the other way from God, into that steps, God himself, and it's light into the darkest of places. And Zechariah knew it. Zechariah was a man who was in the temple. And Jesus is brought by his parents. He's probably no more than five weeks old. And they bring him up that they might do for, uh, for Mary and for the child that which was required by the law. Um, the sacrifices to be given associated with purification. And this little child in Zechariah, he knows. He says, my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And you're all saying, it's not Zechariah, it's Simeon. You're right. It's him. He takes this child in his arms from his mother most likely and says my eyes God have seen your salvation in a five week old child my eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light of revelation to the Gentiles is a direct quote from Isaiah chapter 9 it was what they would have understood in their Greek translation at that time so the wording is slightly different in our English but it's there that light coming to that area the glory of your people Israel not only that But Jesus himself knew that he was the fulfilment of this prophecy. John 8 verse 12. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of light. There's the appeal of the Son of God, who's fully, fully understanding of his identity. The greatness of who he is. He's the one who has come in all of his perfection. God himself stepping into that which he has made This is light into the darkness and he comes and he says, I am the light of the world. I'm here as revelation of who God is to the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life. That's what God calls us to through Christ. All of us for salvation, to understand who he is and the darkness and the depravity that our sin will bring that ultimately will take us from him. And bring all sorts of hideous consequences. To save us from that he came. And said I'm revealing myself to you. And in revealing myself to you. I'm revealing who you are to yourself too. I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness. but will have the light of life. And then you go over to John chapter 12. And verses 45 and 46. The Lord Jesus said this. He who has seen me. Has seen the one who sent me. I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. That's why this one has come, the child. God with us has come so that we will not remain in the darkness that is of our making, of our sin, of our rejection of God. Exemplified in King Ahaz, in the northern kingdom and ultimately in the southern kingdom, the rejection of God's things brings on them. These dar- dark days of distress and despair. No hope. But then comes this light. And it's Jesus, the Son of God. Let's think just for a moment about what Jesus, God with us. And we say that because it was taken and applied to the Lord Jesus by the gospel writers. We call his name Emmanuel. God with us. It applies to that baby that was born. That one who grew up and became a man and went out uh, for three to four years doing things of miraculous things that hadn't been seen for a long time in Israel. Let's think about this one who has come and what he stepped into. At the very beginning he stepped into the darkness of a Judean September. That's most likely when the Lord was born just towards the end of the season when they could still have the shepherds out on their fields at night watching over their flocks. It was at night and into the darkness of that setting and into the fearfulness for the shepherds as they're there in the darkness watching over their animals for, for wild beasts and for any that would come and steal. Well, what a stressful work that was. And they're just longing for the dawn of the day. Every night they're longing for the dawn of the day. And then the glory of the angels appears to them and says do not be afraid for behold I bring you good news of great joy which will be for all the people for today. There has been born for you a Saviour who is Christ the Lord. Into the darkness of that Judean September night comes the one who was born laid in a manger. And the shepherds they run off with all of that joy because of what they've seen of the glory of the Lord in the angels because they want to see the glory of the Lord in a baby who's lying in a manger he stepped into that darkness not only that he stepped into the darkness of the Judean situation and I mean by that the despairing situation because at this time when the Lord Jesus arrives Israel is not known as Israel it's known as Judea and various other names because it's under the rule of Rome Brutal, brutal rule of Rome suppressing any uprising and there were many. And they've been through centuries of fighting and horrific things. Look at the history of it. It's just hideous. And it's stuff that we're seeing again in our world in exactly the same part of our world almost. And it's brought back in again. It's just hideous, hideous cycle of violence and darkness and despair and distress. And into that setting of seemingly, uh, they just can't get out of this. Who can defeat the the Romans? The Son of God comes into that setting and for the whole of his life lives under the darkness of that despair. Ultimately, to be crucified. uh, The Roman means of crucifixion, of execution. Ultimately, to give his life. Not only that, he stepped into the words sinfulness. Sinfulness. The darkness of the word sinfulness. The son of God. God himself came as this child. God with us. Right into our mess. To express the love, mercy, grace of God. God with us so that we might be part of this which is referred to in Isaiah chapter 9 as the eternal kingdom over which he will reign forever. And his name, we'll get to it next week. His name is given and from that we learn so much of who God is and who this one is that has come to be with us. In the darkness of our situation, our sin, he comes that light might shine, that there might be hope, that there might be the dawn that was not there, that we might have this hope for this life and beyond. You know, the darkness and distress and despair of our sin keeps us from this God. As Paul in 1 Timothy um, chapter 6. He speaks of the sovereign, the king of kings, the lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. This is the greatness of the God with whom we have to do. And as sinners, we cannot approach the glory of who he is in his holiness. We can't even get near. We'd be all utterly consumed. Righteous wrath against sin. That which has been an absolute affront to that which he has revealed of himself. And he says, I'm doing all this, that you might enjoy it. You know, God does that. God is God when we receive from him and thank him for all that he has done. God is being God when when we're doing that. When we're not, we're denying that he is God. And that's sin. No wonder there's that wrath and hostility It's there. I was reading this morning, maybe some of you were as well, in Leviticus reading. God described his people, Israel, he said, you will be hostile to me. And I will be hostile to you. He's hostile in response to our hostility. His hostility is righteous. Ours is out of wickedness. And that's the darkness into which the Lord comes to bring us to himself. So this one, this child um, comes that he might shine into humanity's darkness and despair through the cross and the resurrection. Let's just for a moment think of what's described as those three R's on the cross. The three synoptic gospel writers are agreed on this. That at midday, when the sun is at its zenith, the son of God who has been nailed to a cross of wood, the Roman execution, under the authority of Rome, in the darkness and despair of that. He's undergone the darkness and distress of the suffering As man would batter him out of their wickedness. And then on the cross, he goes into the deepest of experiences because God will plunge that scene for three hours into darkness. This is the depth to which the Son of God is prepared to come to bring us light. And he gives himself on the cross in those hours of darkness and we have the cry, As he's got in his mind the psalms, the songs, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knows full well. Because the scriptures tell us that there, this one who had come to bring light would go into the darkest of places because there God would count our sin on him. So that by faith and believing that, we would be counted with his righteousness. Now, this is the light of God and the glory of God. And isn't it wonderful that it was on the the Lord's Day morning, the Sunday morning, after the Friday of his crucifixion at dawn, that the Lord is standing outside the tomb. The dawn has come. And for the Lord Jesus, the Son of God, who came into humanity, who lived a life that testified to who he was and all that he had come to be, and to reveal the person of god and to reveal ourselves in so doing he's gone into death into the darkness of that that he might come out victorious over it and he lives in the power of an endless life no wonder we love the savior who said effectively if you believe in me you will have eternal life because he has that life to give and we here we're enjoying that but he came to the darkness to bring us to this light. Now, just in closing, what does this mean for us? We're all believers in the Lord Jesus here. It should cause us to come and worship and to praise that into the scene of darkness, God would come in the person of his son. We'll think about him next week in his name, and then we'll think about his kingdom and all that the hope that that brings to us in our darkness, still in our world, And sometimes the distress that we face in our lives and also sometimes the despair that can overwhelm us. How Christ, the light of the world, can shine into our Christian experience to help us to live in light and liberty and with laughter. The Lord Jesus said in Matthew 5 and 14, you're the light of the world to his disciples. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand. The Lord Jesus said to his followers, you're the light of the world. So our responsibility today as light bearers is particularly maybe in this season, in the run up to Christmas, is to shine with the glory of Christ as the Spirit will work in our lives, as we would allow him to do that. I use that word carefully. As we would submit ourselves to the things that God says so that the light of the glory of God might be seen in our lives, that it would touch others too. Philippians 2. Do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent. Children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. We know that's the setting in which we live. Among whom you appear as light in the world, holding fast to the word of life. There's a darkness that's ever deepening and descending on our culture and our society and on our world. And today we have to hold fast to the revealed word of God. And as those who know the light, we are to hold the light. And we're to show the light in our lives. We're to appear as lights in this world. Some of the other translations of that portion of Philippians 2 shine like the stars. Against that black backdrop, the stars stand out. That's what we're to be. And in this season, the appeal to my heart from the Lord's word is to be the same. He has come. God is with us. That light might dawn. And light has dawned in our experience. And that light will never, ever set. The sun will never set for us but what about the darkness in which the people that we work with, we live next to that we spend time with, what about them, how are they to see the light are they going to be picking up their Bibles themselves I don't know maybe this season will draw some to that but we're the light bearers and we show Christ to those let's do it for his glory let's pray